Hello, and welcome to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Zankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, I just recently came back from the inaugural and likely only running of the Ironman Indiana that concomitantly ran with the Muncie 70.3 race. It was a great event and one that I am going to look back on quite fondly, despite the devilishly hard run course. Mostly, I will reminisce over my best ever time in an Ironman event and my highest ever placing, but this was the culmination of a full year of training and preparation, and it was really nice to finally race that distance again, and especially to have it go as well as it did. I was asked by a couple of my Patreon subscribers to provide a report of my race on this podcast, but I thought that might be a little self-serving, so instead, I've written an incredibly overlong and verbose report that you're welcome to read if you're so inclined, and that can be found over on my TriDoc Coaching website. Specifically, the URL to find that report is tridoccoaching.com forward slash files, all one word, and I'm going to include that link in the show notes. I do, however, want to share a couple of things that I took from the weekend, though, because I think they're instructive and can be of help for anyone who's training for an endurance event, but especially if you're in it for an Ironman. Now, these are things that I share with the athletes who I coach, and I have found that they inform my own training and racing, and so I think you might find them useful. And first and foremost, consistency is king. I personally have been a model of consistency for the past three years, and I have zero doubt that my continuing successes in triathlon are attributable to this fact more than anything else. And it isn't just about hitting all my workouts. It's about hitting them all with good quality. I never just go through the motions. I always approach every workout with the same intent, that this one day could be critical to getting me to my goal. It's not like I never miss a workout, but it's exceedingly rare. And the fact is, I believe that the sum total of all of those individual efforts is what gets you to the finish as fast as you possibly can. Second, Ironman is very much a team sport, even though you're out there all by yourself. Without the support and buy-in of my incredible family, there is no way that I could train as much as I do, nor have the successes that I have. So make your family part of the process. Make sure they understand what they are getting into as much as what you are getting into. I've made a lot of sacrifices to get where I am, but I continually acknowledge that they have as well, and by constantly ensuring that I am infringing on them as little as possible, it is doable to ensure that everyone is in a state of some degree of happiness with what's going on. Keep communication lines open and make sure that everyone is on board right from the start. Otherwise, it might be worthwhile reassessing your goals and objectives. Third, keep nutrition simple. I personally use zero supplements, zero fad diets, and no electrolyte or salt tablets on course. Nutrition for long-distance triathlon just doesn't have to be that complicated. Eat sensibly in training, go easy on the alcohol, or, like me, skip it altogether when you're training, and for goodness sakes, eat carbohydrates. Your body wants them and uses them over 10 plus hours. Oh, and I don't need continuous glucose monitoring to show me that my sugar goes up every time I eat. I don't need to intermittently fast. I just eat normal foods. Although, because of a personal choice, most of my foods are plant-based. And on race day, fuel exactly how you practice in training. Do all of those things, and honestly, you'll be fine. Four, plan your race and race your plan. I've said this probably a million times, and you'll keep hearing it. 
5th. Focus on the things you can control and be prepared for everything else, but tune everything else out. The amount of insanity and energy wasted by people on stuff that is just completely out of their control never ceases to amaze me. Yes, I plan and prepare for all eventualities, but I just don't care about any of them unless they come to pass, in which case I'm ready because I've given it thought and I know what to do in case it happens. But I don't spend any time worrying about water temperature, weather, what's going to happen on the road, or anything like that. I just focus on all of the preparation I've done, and I'm ready to go when the gun goes off. Now, are you looking for a coach who can potentially help you manage all of these things and more? Well, if you're thinking about it, I hope that you'll reach out because I'd love to chat with you about your goals and how maybe together we can help you achieve them. On the show today, I'm going to spend some time investigating a training aid that I recently heard about during the Tokyo Olympics. Blood flow restriction, or BFR, has been around for a long time, but recently it's begun to pop up in endurance sport. So what is this training aid, and does it actually work? Should you be looking into cutting off the blood flow to your limbs in order to get a performance boost? Well, I'll look at the science on all of this, and that's coming up in just a short bit. Later, I'm joined by longtime endurance athlete John Duquette. John is the owner of Blue 70 Sports, maker of swimming tools and wetsuits for triathletes. John joins me to help explain a lot of the things that triathletes want to know about why it is wetsuits help in the swim, how to know the difference between one wetsuit and another, and why you really shouldn't be too worried when you try on a wetsuit on land and it feels so uncomfortably tight. I'll have that conversation for you coming up in a little while. Before that, I want to take a moment to remind you once again of all of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For just the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there's bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, and Dan Emfield, to name just a few, along with a talk by yours truly on the science of tapering. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering. During the recent Tokyo Olympics, an article in the New York Times caught my eye. The story was about a novel kind of training regimen being employed by athletes from different countries and involved the use of tight-fitting bands to the upper arms or legs to restrict blood flow into the limbs. Now, I had never heard of such a thing and was kind of surprised to learn that blood flow restriction has been in use principally among weightlifters since Japanese bodybuilder Yoshiaki Sato first conceived of the technique that he developed by practicing it on himself back in the late 1960s. The training regimen is referred to as kaatsu, but in North America is much more frequently just simply called blood flow restriction, or BFR, and it has its adherents and proselytizers, including many in endurance sports. Galen Rupp, the American marathoner, and swimmer Michael Andrew are two such examples who were quoted extensively in that New York Times article. If you're like me, though, you have probably not heard a lot about BFR, nor do you really have any idea how it is supposed to work or whether it confers the benefits that its supporters say that it does. 
Well, we dug through the science on this, and as is so often the case, the reality of what BFR can be expected to do and what athletes can get from it is not really all that straightforward, and certainly not the miracle that its proponents might have us believe. Let's consider first and foremost what BFR is and how it's supposed to work. You may recall that back in episode 70, I spoke with Paul Larson about the benefits of high-intensity interval training, or HIT. At that time, Paul told us about how HIT has a lot of good scientific research to support its integration into training routines, including for sports like triathlon, and that the rationale behind its success has to do with overstressing the muscles and triggering a kind of adaptive response that results in improved oxygen delivery and utilization, as well as improvements in muscle strength and efficiency. Now, one of the problems with HIT is that the stress that it puts on the body and on those muscles themselves while beneficial, in the long run, it can also be somewhat detrimental in the short run because it can cause injury. Now, Dr. Sato, or Sato, theorized back in the early 1970s that it might be possible to create the cellular conditions of HIT without necessarily performing HIT itself if we simulated the conditions experienced by the cells during HIT by restricting the flow of oxygenated blood to the tissues during lower-intensity exercise. So let's explain this another way. When you perform HIT interval specifically, you're working your muscles at a pace that basically outstrips the supply of oxygen delivery. And as a result of that, you cross into the anaerobic zone and begin to build up some toxic metabolites, like lactate is just one example. Then, once the hit is over, during the recovery phase, oxygenation is restored, those metabolites are washed away, and everything comes back into balance. With BFR, or blood flow restriction, you're artificially creating the same kind of environment that you get with HIT. But this time, it isn't by causing an imbalance through increasing work that outstrips oxygen supply. Instead, what you're doing is you're restricting oxygen delivery and therefore reducing the oxygen supply to the tissues, such that lower amounts of work are needed to get the same intracellular effects. So in theory, you could get the cellular advantages of HIT intervals without doing HIT at all. And that isn't the only theory by which BFR is purported to confer benefits. BFR is also theorized to allow for improvements in recovery during injury and decrease muscle detraining during injury recovery as well. Because you're unable to exercise at normal intensity when you're injured, using BFR could allow you to create tissue and cellular conditions that make your body think it's performing at a much higher level of exertion than it actually is. And doing so could then allow for an athlete to maintain improved conditioning in an injured limb than would otherwise be possible. Apparently, Dr. Sato found this out himself when he had a serious ankle injury back in the early 70s when he was developing this whole technique. Although he was in a cast and unable to do much with his leg, he was able to use his katsu training to do very light exercise with his leg muscles and sustained almost no atrophy at all, such that when the cast was removed after six weeks, he was able to return to normal activities much sooner than would otherwise have been expected. Now, finally, along the same lines, BFR has also been theorized to be useful during the taper period, when intensity is beneficial, but training volume should be decreased. 
By using BFR, it's theorized, athletes could do more with less by simulating the conditions of high-intensity exercise while doing shorter amounts of low-intensity exercise, allowing their muscles to recover while still getting the benefits of that high-intensity. So those are all the theoretical advantages by which BFR is supposed to work. Now, what does the science say? Well, since 2015, there have been more than 2,000 research papers published on BFR, and that's an astonishingly high number. There aren't too many things that engender that kind of research interest. And what that tells me is that, okay, yes, there's a lot of interest in this modality and its possible benefits, but it also tells me that there obviously hasn't been any earth-shattering findings, because if there were, we would have heard about it by now. And you wouldn't need to be doing that many trials to find a result if a really, really significant one was sitting there right in front of you. Okay, so with 2,000 plus papers, it also creates a problem for us doing this podcast to be able to sort through the chaff and be able to find the good stuff and be able to report to you on what the science actually says. So we were kind of forced into focusing on high-level systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and that engendered its own problems, which I'll get to in a second. Now, one of the reviews was a pretty nice one that was published in 2019 and focused specifically on the effects of blood flow restriction on aerobic capacity and performance. Now, one of the major problems that comes up in the scientific literature over and over again when looking at studies on BFR is that there's really no one well-accepted method for doing this. Studies tend to employ differing amounts of pressure that results in varying amounts of actual blood flow restriction, different intensities of exercise, and even varying durations of application of these bands. So when you compare all of these studies and combine the data together, it's really hard to know what you're getting in the resulting sausage. At any rate, the authors of this particular review found that BFR did indeed have some effects on aerobic performance, specifically on VO2 max. But the benefits seemed to be restricted to those who were young, less than 40 years old or so, and when the occlusion pressures, in other words, the pressures used by the band, were quite high. The trade-offs for getting these benefits, despite performing at pretty low intensities, was that participants tended to have quite a lot of delayed-onset muscle soreness after each session, which isn't all that hard to, you know, imagine why. If you cut off the blood flow to an exercise to a to a muscle when you're exercising it, even if not terribly vigorously, and even if only for a short time, you're still causing a fair amount of tissue inflammation and even some damage, so that when you restore blood flow, you're going to end up with a fair amount of uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. So it's not that hard to understand. A separate study, a meta-analysis from 2020, pooled the results of seven really small studies and seemed to conclude that BFR was effective in improving the aerobic capacity in endurance athletes more than was possible with standard training alone. But when I teased through the paper and looked really carefully at the actual results, I have some serious doubts about the validity of this conclusion. It turns out that a single study, including a total of 12 patients or 12 study uh, subjects, was responsible for the entire effect size, making it somewhat unlikely that it's a valid assessment. And this is the problem you get 
when you do meta-analyses. You'll recall, as I've said on this podcast before, a meta-analysis is when you pool the results of many different studies and take all those results and look at them all at once. And the problem is, is if you have a bunch of poorly constructed studies, then throwing them together just gives you a poorly constructed meta-analysis. If you have one really bad study thrown together with four really good studies, then the effect of that really bad study can have an outsized effect on your results. And I think that's what's happening here. Most of the studies in this meta-analysis showed no difference of BFR versus no BFR, but one really small study showed a huge difference. And I suspect that that study was probably not the strongest one of the bunch. Now, interestingly, studies that have reviewed BFR in older adults tend not to show similar benefits. I mentioned earlier in that review paper that, you know, all of the benefits seem to be restricted to younger patients. And in fact, that seems to show up as a recurring theme over and over again. Now, another review from earlier this year in 2021 looked at BFR as a means of improving muscular size and strength in players of team sports like soccer or football. And here the results were a little bit mixed. Again, a major problem with this study was the fact that inconsistent and widely variable methods were used by different authors and papers that were then pooled together. And because of the differing training regimens, it was kind of hard to know what to do with the pooled results. Regardless, the results of this review found that for the most part, muscular size didn't really increase when using BFR, and strength increases that were seen in some studies weren't seen in others, and so it wasn't really clear whether or not BFR led to strength increases or not. Now, with respect to BFR being able to mitigate muscle wasting and injury, several studies have looked at this question as well. And in one review, the authors found that BFR may improve muscle growth in older patients rehabilitating from injury, and that this may be associated with improved strength. But they conceded that, again, the lack of consistency in study methods made it somewhat difficult to make any definitive conclusions. And interestingly, where we saw that there was really no benefit for older patients in seeing any improvements in aerobic benefits or improved exercise performance, we do see in this review that older patients seem to get some benefit from BFR in terms of decreased muscle wasting after injury. So kind of hard to put all of this together. Another meta-analysis collated the results from studies evaluating BFR as an aid in injury rehabilitation. BFR in this case seemed to be beneficial in improving muscle strength and limiting wasting in patients who were recovering from osteoarthritis or from knee surgery, specifically ACL-type repairs. Now, the effect size was small and, again, impacted more by specific small studies in the group of selected studies that were pooled together, but there's no question the result is definitely there. Now, there was no comment as to how this um, improvement in muscle strength and limited wasting actually impacted recovery times or return to normal activities, so it's kind of hard to know what to do with this, but in terms of an actual outcome, BFR seemed to have some impact here. I mentioned also earlier about how BFR may be a viable strategy for tapering, but there have been no specific studies looking at this question in detail, so the jury's going to be very much out on this one for now. 
So where does all of this leave us? Well, on the one hand, there does appear to be some evidence, a little bit mixed and a little bit questionable in terms of its strength, that BFR can have some effects on aerobic capacity and on muscle size and strength, but predominantly in young and healthy people, and again, to somewhat varying degrees. In fact, those degrees are so wildly variable that it's kind of difficult to really know if the effects being reported are really there or if they are simply the result of some small studies with large observed effects sizes having an outsized impact on the overall conclusions. What I can say for certain is that there is no standardized way to use BFR, and in the absence of a widely accepted protocol, it's really hard to know what we're looking what we're talking about when we say that BFR works. What pressures? For how long? Doing what kinds of activities? So at the end of the day, despite more than 2,000 studies, I'm not sure that we really have a good answer, and we might need 2,000 more just to get there. I think based on what I have read, blood flow restriction may have its most important impact in athletes who are recovering from an injury or who are unable to train at their maximum intensity because of an injury. In those people, it seems as though BFR may offer the ability to simulate higher intensity training than would otherwise be possible because of their injury. Certainly, BFR appears to be safe, and if it means maintaining strength and aerobic capacity in an injured person who otherwise might not be able to, then it's probably worth a try. However, if you're able-bodied, and especially if you're an older athlete or a woman for whom there is almost no evidence on BFR, and what evidence there is suggests that it does not work for that sex, BFR may be something that you want to hold off on for the time being. Until there's a more standardized approach on how to use it and good data to show that it really is better than simply performing HIT in your normal training routine, I remain unconvinced that this is the answer for triathletes or other endurance athletes looking to get an edge in their ongoing training. Do you have a question for me to answer on this podcast, or do you have a comment on anything you've heard in this segment? Well, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at iCloud. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. My guest today is John Duquette, the owner of Blue 70, maker of some of the world's top triathlon wetsuits, goggles, and other swim accessories. John has been a member of the triathlon and endurance sports industry for over 20 years. After finding himself too small and too slow to excel at college rugby, he did his first running race in 1998 and his first triathlon in 1999. And like so many other athletes, he was quickly hooked on the camaraderie and sense of accomplishment that endurance sports offered. Since then, he has raced in hundreds of events all over the world. He joined the team at Blue 70 in 2007 and actually purchased the company in 2017. Currently, besides running his global business, he enjoys skiing, mountain bike racing, open water swimming, and and introducing his two children to the great experiences they can have when they actually put down their iPads. Well, for now, he's taken a few moments of his time to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, John. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Uh, now, for uh, my listeners, full disclosure, Blue 70 is a team sponsor of Life Sport Coaching, of which I am, of course, a member. So I want to get that out of the way. Uh, but John, uh, tell us, I, I love the, the etymology of the title, Blue 70, but tell us what's the history of uh, the company, Blue 70. Uh, Blue 70 started in the late 90s as Ironman wetsuits uh, out of actually New Zealand. A woman uh, named Lee made neoprene bike seat covers. And uh, the neoprene supplier uh, showed her a triathlon wetsuit uh, made obviously out of neoprene. And uh, she she was all in. She saw a great opportunity there. I believe she was just behind Dan Enfield, but Dan was doing his thing in the U.S. and she was doing her thing in New Zealand. And uh, she thought the best way to launch the brand would be with Iron Man when, you know, it was a completely different game 25, 30 years ago. So, uh yeah, started as Iron Man wetsuits, excelled as Iron Man wetsuits, and uh, at the end of the 2005 season, uh, the name was changed from Iron Man wetsuits to Blue 70, uh, Blue 70 meaning 70% of the world is covered in water. And uh, up until 2008, we considered ourselves an open water swim company, not a triathlon company, but an open water swim company. And and, and we still definitely try to stay true to those roots in that um we support obviously world class triathletes and and we make product that's very beginner friendly for triathletes, but we love to support people who are doing crazy things. Um, long adventure swim, swimming along, along, or excuse me, swimming around long Island, swimming uh, the length of various rivers and whatnot. Uh, and with this pandemic, we've met a whole lot more of those people doing some really extreme things. Now I say we got away from open water swimming slightly only because we have a very, strong line of pool competition suits. So um, we work with swim teams and some pretty fast pool swimmers now as well. And if I, I believe I'm correct in saying that there's been a change in the logo as well, it used to spell out 70 and now you've abbreviated it in, with the numerals seven zero. Yeah, it was definitely time to update the logo. Uh, we had had the same logo since 2005 and uh, it's, a, it's a little bit frustrating because we had hoped to have a you know, entire new logo launch this year, but COVID kind of ground things to a halt and a lot of steps in that process. So we were only able to get the logo changed on half the product this year. Uh, basically the product that carried over uh, still has the old logo, but next year um, all the product line will be fully updated with the new logo. Uh, I really like the look at it of it and it was a really fun and exciting process to go through that. You know, you're, you're reinventing your brand. It gives you a lot of different things to think about. Yeah, I went through the process of creating a logo and I, I really enjoyed it. So I can only imagine in a company like yours, uh, when you're, you've got something that's established over time and you're looking at redoing it, it must be quite an interesting um, process uh, to go through. And uh, yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I, I've, I saw it and I think it, uh, it really does the job. It, it's nice. So, uh, you know, one of the questions I get a lot from my own athletes and from athletes who come to me with with uh, uh, who are new to getting into the sport is why a wetsuit? Uh, how do wetsuits help triathletes? So I figure you as a maker of uh, wetsuits would probably be best uh, informed to answer that question. Sure. I mean, the number one thing is buoyancy, right? Uh, most triathlons are held in water that you could swim in without a wetsuit, but most triathletes uh, aren't particularly strong swimmers and they have poor body position in the water. So covering those legs with five millimeter rubber gets the legs up and in a more streamlined position and keeps your, your legs and your waist from sinking. So you swim faster. Um, just the, the rubber lifting you up also makes you glide more. So your stroke 
rate is typically reduced. You're certainly swimming farther per stroke. So that's the number one thing. Everybody swims faster in a wetsuit. The worse swimmer you are, the more benefit you gain from wearing a wetsuit. Uh, outside of that, there's obviously warmth too. Uh, I think it's safer in a wetsuit. It's if, unless you're having a medical emergency, I think it's pretty darn hard to drown in a wetsuit because, uh, it, it keeps you afloat. Yeah. And, you know, as a scuba diver, uh, I recognize how the wetsuits work differently in triathlon and in scuba diving and scuba diving. The whole point of the wetsuit is actually to have water in the wetsuit because the water actually works as an insulated insulation water warms up and, and stays in the wetsuit and keeps you warm. Whereas in triathlon, you're actually keeping water out. And so the neoprene itself is what's keeping you warm. Uh, has anybody ever looked at, uh, the, um, insulating, differences between you know equivalent thickness surf or dive wetsuits versus triathlon wetsuits or is that just not something that's particularly of interest well for most people they don't want a, a super insulating triathlon wetsuit as it is uh it's interesting we do one with a thermal lining which actually so a little bit of water does get into your triathlon wetsuit not a lot you shouldn't have water flushing through it but it's not unusual to get a little bit of water in the zipper uh that would be the main place it would leak and maybe a slight amount through the neck. But if you're leaking water, a lot of water through your neck, then that's not a good fitting suit for you. Um, in general, you know, people are racing or, or at least doing long swims and generating a lot of heat in these suits. Uh, we do, as I was saying, we do one suit with a thermal lining and that used to be kind of a niche product for us, uh, where we didn't sell a whole lot, but we made it for those adventure swimmers that I was talking about earlier. But with the pandemic shutting down pools, that has gone from a niche product to a very core product for us. Uh, we are we're selling more than three times as many as we used to, and we'd be selling a lot more if we could have got production in line and got them made last year. So it's really interesting to see um, how swimmers need to swim. Right, I, I keep saying it: runners need to run, and cyclists need to ride, and then you close all the pools and you learn all these swimmers that, you know, are in their YMCA three days a week are hitting the lakes and they don't care if the water's 48 degrees, they got to get in there and do their thing. Yeah. It's really interesting. And if you look at business lessons learned, uh, I guess that's going to be one that you're kind of going to be like, if we had known in advance uh, to, to make this come online in a bigger fashion, we could have sold a lot more. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've spoken to other people in industries like bike industries also talking about how they have been unable to meet demand of certain types of product lines. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of like this, Oh, of course. But at the time, uh, I, I think a lot of people were taken off guard, uh, by, uh, the things that the pandemic sort of made all of a sudden desirable. It's kind of interesting. Uh, okay. So help a newbie understand some of the basics, uh, that they want to look for when they're perusing different wetsuits. Um, you know, you, you can be overwhelmed quickly by a lot of the technical things that are thrown at you, specifically the different kinds of rubber, uh, the thickness of the wetsuit and even the zipper direction. I know that you guys make one that has a zipper that goes in the opposite direction that most people are used to, uh, help a newbie understand what they should really be looking for when they, they, they look at some of these different sites and different kinds of wetsuits? Sure. So, uh, wetsuits typically will range from the mid two hundreds to over a thousand dollars. And at a very general level, the more you spend on a wetsuit, uh, the more flexible it is, the more buoyant it's going to be and the more comfortable it's going to be because it's going to have more detailed paneling. It's going to have nicer linings and whatnot. Uh, the rules stipulate that a suit can't be thicker than five millimeters. So any triathlon wetsuit you're looking at from anybody is going to be five millimeters. That is absolute thickest. 
we have learned that there are certain materials outside of neoprene, different foams, and a different kind of neoprene that um, has more buoyancy than your regular uh, five millimeter neoprene. So, for example, our helix has some foam in the back of the legs and the butt to, that that gives it extra buoyancy. Um, so, you know, at a at a two hundred to three hundred dollar price point, you're getting a decent suit. You're getting four to five millimeter rubber, um, and and it'll flex well, but. Uh, we always consider that kind of four to five hundred dollar price point kind of the sweet spot. Uh, I use cycling group sets a lot as an analogy, uh, where you know that four to five hundred dollar level is kind of like that Altegra group set, where it's going to last you a long time. It's going to perform nearly as good as the higher end stuff, and uh, it, it's kind of gr- going to grow with you in a sport. I find a lot of times people will start with the cheapest wetsuit they could buy, and then. And, th- and that's all well and good if you've never done open water swim or a triathlon. Uh, but once you do a few triathlons and you you realize that this is a sport that you really want to commit to, um, it's not unusual to want to upgrade your gear right away. And it's, it's like if you just spend that extra $100, $150 to begin with, then you won't feel the need to upgrade your wetsuit right away. Uh, so besides the, the differences between the suits, you've got the option of the sleeveless suit versus the full suit. Uh, we recommend a full suit as much as possible. You could obviously go in colder water. Uh, they're faster because you get the continuation of water underneath the gusset and you get a little bit more buoyancy out of it too. It's just a more versatile and faster suit to go with a full suit. That being said, some people are just convinced that they need a sleeveless suit, whether they have shoulder injury or they claim they're a Olympic level swimmer who can't stand having their shoulders covered. And, you know, over the years you learn not to argue with them. And, uh, we used to do three sleeveless suits, but, um, now we just do one cause it's really not that big of a market anymore. And, uh, there's no huge advantage to doing a super high end sleeveless suit because most of the technology in a high end wetsuit is going to have to do with the shoulders and, uh, reducing restriction as much as possible. I'm so glad you said that because that is an argument I have all the time. And I think that your conclusion that it's not worth arguing is probably the one I need to get to sooner. Uh, Because as much as I tell people that getting a wetsuit with sleeves is just, there's no reason to do otherwise. I I can't seem to get over the, um, the resistance that people, you know, feel, I, I, I believe like, like you mentioned or alluded to that, that this is entirely psychological, that people just have this feeling that something on their shoulders is somehow making them not able to move. Uh, I guess I kind of get that because especially for people who are new to the sport, they haven't really been in a wetsuit and they're not used to the constricting feeling. So, I think that sort of dovetails into my next question, which is, you know, helping people understand the concept of wetsuit fit. Uh, you know, people, people seem to think that when they get into a wetsuit, how it fits on land is how it is going to fit in the water. And I think that's a major mistake that they're making. And so they're buying a wetsuit that's too big for them. Is that uh, a, a correct assessment? Yeah, as our business has shifted from primarily wholesale sales to retailers to and and we're a lot more consumer direct now, that's definitely our biggest focus is proper education of people um especially during this once again during this pandemic where we're dealing with people who have never worn a wetsuit and they they have this perception that it should fit like a t-shirt. Uh the wetsuit should fit very very tight especially Especially when it's dry and you're standing up on dry land because the rubber loosens up when it gets wet and the rise from the crotch to the neck will loosen up once you're horizontal rather than vertical in the suit. So 
Uh, we launched a really cool website called myfirstwetsuit.com where we have very detailed videos, both what to do when you're putting on the wetsuit and what not to do when you're putting on the wetsuit. So when when somebody calls and says, I cannot get this suit to fit, uh, we say, just go to myfirstwetsuit.com and check those videos. And more often than not, they learn what they were doing wrong. And the whole theme when you're putting on a suit is to get as much rubber on the top of the suit as possible. And that starts at step one when you're setting that the lower leg above your ankle, the, the leg hole there, um, put it up higher than you think you need it. You could always pull it back down. But if you're starting with the bottom of the suit around your ankles instead of mid shin, then it's already a losing battle. You got to get as much rubber up as possible. Um, starting with your crotch, you don't want any sag there and then keep working it up and, uh, throw your arms through. And then it's the process of starting in the bottom of the sleeve and pulling those sleeves up, up, up. It's like a snowball where you're gathering more and more rubber as you work your way up to the shoulder. And usually by the time you get to the shoulder, you've got a big armful of rubber that you set up there. And then people say, oh yeah, this feels a lot better. There's nothing more frustrating than when somebody calls and, and they're shorter and lighter than me. And they claim that a suit that's one size bigger than I wear is too small for them because you know, they're just putting it on wrong. So we launched that myfirstwetsuit.com and those videos in the fall. And it's helped quite a bit rather than trying to explain it over the phone. And I imagine it's not just putting it on, but it's also just not understanding how a wetsuit should feel. Uh, like you said, you know, it's going to feel tighter on land. It's going to feel tighter when you're standing up. And then once you get in the water, suddenly it just all of a sudden seems to feel so much looser. And that's just the natural sort of process. Uh, and uh, something that I have uh, also told uh, people who are new to the sport, always buy a suit that feels tight because it won't feel tight when you're swimming. And uh, difficult to get across to people who are new to it. But uh, I think that if they embrace that early, they're always going to be happier than if they buy one that feels too comfortable because the second they get in the water, they realize it's too big. Um, sure. and, and a wetsuit that's too big, how is that a problem? It, well, there's a few things. It's going to flush a lot of water and then that water is going to pull up and there. Usually you'd see a wrinkle in the lower back or in the bottom of the stomach. So all of a sudden you're going to be carrying a bunch of water around with you. It could actually be a bit more constrictive in the sleeves because you've got just all this excess bulk rubber that isn't taut against your body. And, you know, there are wrinkles that you're trying to, to pull with every, um, pull in your stroke. So, uh, the main thing is leaking water, but in general, it's just going to be bulky. You're going to feel the suit kind of flopping around almost as you're swimming. And you mentioned the thermal wetsuit a little bit earlier. I, I have one as well. Uh, I really like it for cold water, but one of the things I've struggled with is kind of getting a gauge of what temperature I should use it in. Because uh, like recently I used it at St. George where the water temperature was 60 and I actually found that I was too warm. Uh, I kind of wish I had used my regular wetsuit. And I'm just curious if you kind of have some guidance as to what temperature people should be using thermal wetsuits uh, when they have them and what temperature they should just use a regular wetsuit. I always have to give the disclaimer that water temperature is up to individual tolerance. We've got people swimming in 48 degree Puget Sound, you know, all winter long. And, and we've got people swimming without wetsuits in 48 degree Puget Sound. It's crazy to me. Uh, that being said, I think that once you're below mid fifties, water in general is, is too cold for most people to swim in. I think 55 is a pretty relevant number. And I think 60 degrees is a pretty relevant number. So 
when we developed the thermal reaction, it was actually my idea. I was riding my bike to work in the pouring rain in like January, thinking about our thermal accessories and and wondering, you know, as I was getting soaking wet, if, if that lining would work inside of a wetsuit. And, and sure enough, it, after a couple of rounds of samples, it ended up working out pretty well. Uh, but what I had in mind was kind of that low to mid 50s. If we could give people an extra five degrees of water temp to swim in and get, you know, make 57, 52 degree water feel like 57, then I would have considered that a success. Um, so I, I'm kind of rambling here to answer your question directly. I think definitely mid fifties, the thermal is fine. Uh, I swam in like 63 degree water on Sunday in a thermal suit. Uh, and I, I certainly wasn't cold. I wasn't too hot. Uh, I know some pros like Heather Jackson will swim in her thermal helix in every race that she can because she perceives it to be more buoyant. Uh, technically, it's not, but both uh, Heather Jackson and Guy Crawford are adamant that their thermal helix is more buoyant than their regular helix, and they like to swim in them. So they're they're maybe getting a little hot, but they're suffering through it. And I think uh, both for being too hot and too cold, I think the feet and the head make a big difference. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have a warm wetsuit, but if your head is freezing, if, it, if that's not covering your feet are freezing, then the thermal wetsuit isn't going to help you a lot. And on the flip side, um, you know, in a race, you probably have to wear a cap, but if you're out training, just not wearing a cap will probably keep you quite a bit cooler. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that because I was wearing a thermal cap, uh, as well. And I actually found my head was really hot about halfway through that swim. So kind of, uh, wondered about that decision that I made uh, going into that. So yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned mid fifties because I believe Ironman has changed the, I guess it's 53 where they won't allow a swim anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's still temperatures in there where you could have a 56, 55 degree swim and a thermal wetsuit would be really helpful. Uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit and just talk about a product that you make along with a lot of your competitors. Uh, and that's the, the core shorts, the neoprene shorts to, to help swimmers. And, uh, a lot of, uh, people who are new to the sport, you know, find themselves wondering, do I need those? Uh, how do they help? So uh, I know I have, you know, I have a pair, I love them. And uh, I'm just curious, uh, what's your response in terms of how uh, core shorts can help swimmers in uh, getting faster at triathlon? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's probably a controversial question. Um, we obviously work with a lot of clubs and coaches, and we try not to step on the feet of coaches. There's nothing more awkward than, um, being on a zoom call with a team and telling them that they need to wear a core short. And then the coach cutting you off and say, no, none of you should wear core shorts. You need to learn to swim on your own. You know, um, it, it's my personal opinion that, okay, let me back up. We developed the core short as a training tool to help simulate the body position that a wetsuit puts you in, but in the pool, I mean, you get, you clearly get too hot swimming in a pool in your wetsuit, but by putting the core short on, it raises your hips up similar to wearing a wetsuit and, and it, you know, it arguably can train your body to swim in a better kind of more downhill swimming position. Um, some people like to use them in place of a pull buoy It's like having a pull buoy where you can still kick. Uh, I personally don't like wearing them cause I think it's cheating. I, I swim way faster. I remember a couple of years ago I did challenge Roth. So I was in decent shape and I did back to back timed five hundreds. And the first one I did without core shorts and the second one I did with core shorts. And I, I was, and so in theory, I should have been um, more tired for the second one. And I was 30 seconds faster over 500 
with the core shorts. I, I, I was really amazed by that, uh, especially since I was already feeling fatigued. Uh, but I personally, you know, I want to swim, learn to swim the right way. So I hardly ever use them. Uh, but, you know, we talk to customers who are like, I could swim a lane up in masters. I, I swim in them all the time. I never take them off because, you know, that's how I could hang with that higher lane. And, and, you know, I can't really argue with that, especially if they're going from wearing them in the pool to wearing a wetsuit in the open water. You know, you could argue they're not really losing anything. I thought it was really interesting when we were looking at um, redoing it. We're actually launching within a couple of weeks a new short called the lift short that will replace the core short. And when we were developing that, I did a questionnaire for our professional triathletes. We lean a lot on the opinions of our pros. And, and one of the questions was, do you wear core shorts and when do you wear them? And I was pretty surprised at the amount of pros who did say that they wore them. Uh, none of them wore them all the time, but they would either wear them for really fast, you know, like 10 by 50 all out sets because they thought they could get a little bit more speed and they wanted to train their body to get that speed. Or they would wear them on really easy days, like the day after a race when you're getting in the pool just to loosen up, they'd throw the core shorts on. Uh, so they didn't have to work as hard to stay afloat and they could more focus on just flushing lactic acid out of their body. That's really interesting. I, I, my personal use of them has been when I have a race coming up that I know is going to be wetsuit legal for probably the month before I'll do all my swim sets with uh, the core shorts. Uh, otherwise, I tend not to swim with them because like you, I kind of feel like it's almost cheating and I want to train my body to swim in the proper position. Uh, but I definitely when I know I have a wetsuit race coming, I find it's helpful to just be swimming in that position. Uh, and I found the shorts uh, helpful, but I find it really fascinating uh, that there are so many pros using them. And uh, that's really an interesting insight. So uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking sub 50 minute Ironman swimmers saying, yeah, I like to throw them on sometimes, which I thought really validated the, the, the um, product a lot to me. And the last thing is, uh, we actually sell loads and loads and loads of them in Taiwan, because there are, there are a lot of triathletes in Taiwan, but the ocean's pretty warm, they don't like wearing wetsuits, but it, it's almost a safety aid where they they feel like they can't drown. They're safer in the core short, but they're not going to reheat like they are in a wetsuit. Interesting. That's interesting because you're usually pretty buoyant in salt water, but I guess, yeah, certainly the shorts are going to add a little bit more. Uh, well, let's finish on uh, a question that looks to the future. And that is, uh, do you think we're maxed out on, you know, innovation and technology and wetsuits, or is there still more that can be done? What do you, what do you think the future holds for the triathlon wetsuit? You know, as With, far without as a, giving away any trade secrets, of course. No, yeah, it's fair. I, I think as far as a tra as a wetsuit giving you speed, giving a, a ITU racer that extra twenty seconds to stay with the main pack, I don't know that we're going to get much more. I think so. First of all, we rely. Every I'll just say it. Every company relies a lot on a factory in Japan called Yamamoto that makes eighty percent of the rubber you see in triathlon wetsuits and. Uh, they would need to come out with a game-changing material, but they haven't launched anything new, no new coatings, no new rubbers, no new linings in over a decade. So we're limited to what's available now, and every wetsuit company has the same products available to them. If, if one company is saying that they've got something proprietary, it's just, it's just the same product under a different name. Uh, so the challenge for all of us is to how to use how to combine those materials, how to, to build something, uh, that matches your body that has the correct paneling, uh, little things to try to get an edge. I think the real advancement is actually going to not come at the top end, but 
for us, it's certainly coming at the entry level where uh, the two to three hundred dollar suits are getting a lot nicer, and we're learning. The wetsuit, yeah, it should be uncomfortable to a point, but it doesn't have to be miserable, right? Um, we, you know, the, you're seeing a lot nicer necks than you were seeing ten years ago, and and we revamped the neck even in our suits this year. Um, just kind of little things like that, little details, making the cuffs a little bit smaller so that they're easier to get off. Uh, and and like I said, this isn't necessarily at the top end because this already had a lot of these features, but at the lower end suits, the more entry level suits and um, suits that are going on people that are never going to race a triathlon. They're just getting more comfortable. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's a really interesting, you know, place we're at right now because, uh, I have been in the sport for gosh, two decades and have seen tremendous changes in wetsuits and, uh, have benefited, I think, uh, from those changes, seeing wetsuits going from, things that were, you know, not as flexible as they are now. And certainly, uh, you know, seeing wetsuits that are, are lasting longer and, uh, I think benefiting swimmers and it's going to be interesting to see if there's going to be any changes coming down the pike. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to join me today and discussing uh, wetsuits and their benefits to triathletes, as well as some other really fascinating stuff about blue 70 specifically. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, seeing the replacement for the core shorts and whatever else is going to be coming down the line. Uh, thanks again for being with me on the TriDog podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like us to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy. <laughs>